This morning, I have Sam Zadot from the Division of Vascular and Interventional Neurology at the Medical uh, College of uh, Wisconsin. And Sam had, was corresponding author on uh, an editor's choice article that was published in the September issue of uh, JNIS. And, and the article is entitled, Safety and Predictors of Aneurysm Retreatment for Remnant Intracranial Aneurysms After Initial Endovascular Embolization. Sam, I really appreciate you agreeing to talk to me uh, this morning, and congratulations on on the Senator's Choice uh, article. Do you, can you uh, talk to me a little bit about the design of the study and and maybe briefly summarize the results? Thank you, thank you, Rob, for um, for uh, inviting me to do this podcast. So uh, this is um, a study that, in in a sense, we have a prospectively collected data. All our data are prospectively collected, but uh, retrospectively analyzed as uh, as uh, scientific questions come along. We go and mine our uh, large database, which currently probably exceeds uh, 1,200 uh, aneurysm. But uh, back then in 2011, we had uh, about 871 aneurysm treated with endovascular therapy, which is uh, at the time the uh, the main stay of treatment in our centers. Uh, we do primarily endovascular therapy in non-selective patients, which is another unique aspect of our, our database. It's non-selective uh, cases that we primarily treat them with endovascular therapy. So uh, from this 871 prospectively collected database, including the main things like outcome uh, complications for quality reasons, uh, we identified in a retrospective fashion by mining the data approximately 122 patients that we retreated uh, and they received retreatment. Okay. Can you summarize some of the results for me? So from those 122 patients that received retreatment, uh, only four received retreatment with a clipping because the clip, there's a space for the clip to allow t- safe treatment. The remaining, uh, uh, the remaining patient, seven were planned staging therapy. From the beginning, we thought we're going to treat it and come back and retreat it, also excluded. And finally, for the purpose of this analysis, 111 patient, uh, aneurysms were identified. From those 111 uh, cases that were identified, the, uh, the main uh, key uh, uh, demographic characteristics that they are, their age is around 53 the majority, as we all know about women, two-thirds were women, and the majority in our population were Caucasian. And the risk factors are typical, high blood pressure, smoking, and family history of brain aneurysms. From those, when we looked at the um, aneurysms uh, difference between the people we retreated and the people we did not retreat from our cohort of one, uh, eight, almost 900 patients, the 100 patient or 111 patient that were treat, retreated, the main differences between the two groups were uh, retreatment in patient with history of subarachnoid hemorrhage, or if the aneurysm previously ruptured, which is about two-thirds of those in the retreatment group versus 45% of our total group had ruptured aneurysms versus uh, the, um, the group that retreated. This was a very strong... Uh, P-value and statistically significant on univariate analysis. If you continue on, you would find also the aneurysm size, which is predicted by most of the 
practitioners, the aneurysm size was also strong predictors on the univariate analysis of the retreatment likelihood. And the final thing what we found, uh, which is interesting, using the stent therapy was protective from retreatment, meaning if you stent a patient to do a stent-assisted calling, you are less likely to require retreatment versus non-stent group. And in addition, the location. The posterior circulation was very strong predictors of uh, recurrence and retreatment uh, rate in our patient population. So those are the main four factors. The outcome overall, which is the main thing that interests us as clinician, is what's the outcome. We had a good outcome with the morbidity and mortality rate of 2.7%, less than 3% permanent neurological deficit or death. Uh, which is very remarkable to have uh, the aneurysm retreated with 2.7% risk of therapy. Um, we have more detail about the complication you may be asking about, uh, but this is, in summary, the predictors of retreatment and the outcome of retreatment. In our experience, uh, patients with uh, ruptured aneurysms, you know, have, have a higher incidence of at least recurrence or you know, remnants. Um, do you have a theory of why you think that might be so? Your question is why those patients who previously treated within a context of ruptured aneurysms are more likely to require retreatment. A couple of the hypotheses that people have talked about in the past, including why smaller aneurysms rupture more often, whether there's an, uh, the vascular wall contract and you are really seeing a smaller size than the actual size after the aneurysm has been quote-unquote, deflated or the vessel contracted to achieve hemostasis, and you may be seeing a smaller size of an aneurysm immediately after rupture versus when you do the follow-up down the line. That's one theory. The other theory is within the aneurysm, the endosacular part of the aneurysm could have been also thrombosed, could be a small layer of thrombus within the aneurysm. That's hard to see on the angiogram. Uh, that helped also in achieving hemostasis. So could it be a small or micro, micro thrombosed aneurysms that we are looking at? And after you treat them down the line, the, uh, the, the vessel relaxes, the endovascular wall, I mean, the vascular wall relaxes, the thrombus resolve, and then the aneurysm uh, come back like you mentioned. That sounds um, reasonable. I think, I think that, at least for me personally, it, it seems that patients with ruptured aneurysms, at least in my experience, have a higher incidence of thromboembolic events during the procedure. And um, I, th I think that, for me personally, sometimes I'm a little less aggressive uh, in the ruptured setting than, the, than I would normally be you know, potentially in an un unruptured setting. But uh, that, that may just be me personally. So the follow-up um, that you guys have, do you have a standard institutional protocol for the follow-up, and does it vary with any factors? So, yeah, so we as a practitioner, we kind of agree there's some variation in the beginning of our practice and our group, uh, but we sat down and we reached a consensus. And based on something you have mentioned yourself, how the subarach nodes are more likely and they are probably, for some reason, there is some biological uh, reason why they're ruptured. So we feel more uh, concerned about the ruptured aneurysm that we treat. And we do, uh, now we agreed and we reached a consensus to look with an angiogram at three months for the ruptured group. 
So in three months, we look. If, there, if it looks good, then we move into uh, once we are less aggressive with angiograms than other groups as a kind of survey the people and talk to people. We do less long-term angiograms. So we do three-month angiogram for ruptured. If it looks obliterated and very decent and Raymond is scale one, we go to MRA once a year. So she will get another nine-month MRA then after that once a year. For the unruptured aneurysm, the elective coiling, we do at least one angiogram at six-month catheter angiogram, and then every year we do an MRA. We have not agreed to when to stop the MRA screening after the first year. Of course, the one with residual, we may be more aggressive, and those group with residual, 10 to 20% of residual, we may even do another angiogram if we are so worried. We may do more frequent MRA. But for the majority, 70 to 80% of the population, they follow this three-month angiogram, catheter angiogram for unruptured, six-month for ruptured, annually thereafter. If it's like with the newer technology, the pipeline, we are less, you know, less concerned about long-term. We do two years MRA, and we stop doing indefinite MRA. For the old coiling or intracranial without uh, pipelines and without a flow diverter, uh, we kind of tend to continue to follow them up. Uh, well, that makes sense. I mean, that's somewhat similar to ours. So we, we, we actually um, you, you probably even do less angiography than you guys do. We, we usually get a, a baseline, you know, MRA uh, at the at the time of coiling, and uh, uh, you know, to correlate with the post coil angiogram, and then and then you predominantly use MRA. If there's a question on the MRA, then we then we uh, go ahead and get an angiogram follow up. But um, pretty similar to ours. As far as retreatment, that's kind of a controversial topic. As far as um, you know, which which aneurysm should or should not be retreated. What do you feel about that? You know, I agree with you. I think the the majority what we treat is, um, it seems even from our database like uh, that we presented in this paper, the majority had Raymond class 3, where the practitioner felt the dye was getting, like only 10 patients had increased filling at the neck. So some of us have treated neck 10 out of the 111, like 8% were neck risk remnant that grew. A significant neck remnant, and the majority were, they wanted to see the dye in the dome of the aneurysm, and that's kind of the biggest criteria. And uh, and 68% of the population were previously ruptured, so I think we are consistent. Where you're worried about those ruptured, a two-third of the retreated patient previously ruptured, and then um, the majority or close to 90% had Raymond class three from the one that we retreated. So I feel like, you know, I mean, although I didn't survey my partners and we didn't put it in the paper because the the variation in the group may confuse the readers, but looking at the result, it seems there is a theme that um, if people feel there is a class of three, the majority of our group were treating those class of three uh, re remnant or recurrence. And um, uh, if there is an increase in the neck filling from baseline, and uh, we're go going to probably put a stent in and uh, add additional, especially with the technology moving to ultra soft and soft allows us to provide more complete obliteration toward the neck. So there may be some feeling that they can go after those as well. Well, that makes sense. Um, yeah, and the retreatment cohort had a, a fairly high use of uh, stent assistance. I would imagine some of those patients were 
acute ruptured aneurysms to begin with, and uh, which is why you may not have uh, utilized um, stent assistance. But do, do you have a, a general feeling about, you know, other than the initial presentation of, of rupture, what, why stent assistance might not have been chosen initially, but then was um, chosen for, for the um, uh, retreatment protocol? No, I think that's a good question. I think uh, that's valid. Like you said, you, you stated the obvious reason, which is probably early on with the complexity of um, antithrombotic therapy and uh, how to do it in relation to ventriculostomy, in relation to a need for surgery in case there will be a need. So people try to avoid acute stenting. Then I think the subsequent therapy, um, people may be using stent for two reasons. One is really to bridge the neck and provide a folding. And the other one, even with a standard stent, not the flow diverter, some people believe there may be a change in the flow pattern that will also help them achieving permanent obliteration and definitive therapy, even with the older stent generation that are not meant to be a flow diverter. Some people believe that there is some um, of those stents. So I think the retreatment for recurrence is trying to be more assertive and provide them. Um, uh, more packing density provides more flow diversion with the old stent uh, designs, uh, non-flow diverting stent. So I think that may be the second uh, rationale of uh, using more uh, if the aneurysm is, re- is recurrent. Well, that makes sense. Um, you, you mentioned, and it's true, your morbidity of of retreatment is is remarkably low, um, uh, which is great. Um, the main morbidity or, um, or complications seem to be intraoperative um, uh, perforation, which was also fairly low, but maybe slightly higher than what's in the literature for um, primary treatment. Do you have a theory about that? I mean, do you think that, you know, catheter, uh, it always seems to me that, um, it, you know, even in the primary treatment when you're trying to reposition uh, the catheter and guide wire into uh, an aneurysm that already has coils in it, uh, you're doing it sort of blindly because it's very difficult to see the catheter tip. Do you think that that may have played a role in some of those cases? Those are very good uh, explanations, what you just mentioned, and um, I agree with that. Uh, In addition, I was thinking about this question in particular. I think the fact that um, two two things, like what you said, that the dome is obscured when you're trying to access the aneurysm and the recurrence. And maybe you have to be very careful that the microwire doesn't go through the old um, coil mass and um, breach the dome. That's one potential, uh, given the, um, like the, vis- the visibility may be a problematic. The second um, uh, explanation I had is there is, you know, the symptomatic uh, from those 5%, only 2% were symptomatic. So uh, I'm not sure because it's prospectively collected data for the purpose of equality, whether people were calling every um, contrast extravasation, there is more of a certain uh, certainty of um, the extravasation of contrast as an IOP, as an uh, intra-procedure perforation. And the third thing I was uh, wondering about is um, because it's recurrent and people may be more aggressive packer for the recurrence, they don't want to treat it for the third time and they may be pushing the the limit uh, in general uh, subconsciously and they you know uh, reverse I mean that's like you know you really do not want to go and retreat this aneurysm 
the patient knows, you know, he's getting retreatment again, so you may be overpacking. That theory we didn't test to see the difference between the packing density of the initial therapy versus a subsequent therapy, whether people are more aggressive, so they avoid a third recurrence um, uh, of those cases. So I think uh, those factors may play into the I, uh, into the IOP rate. As a field, we're, we're slowly gathering um, flow dynamic da data. Um, do you think uh, in the future there may be a role for that as far as deciding, uh, trying to segregate which aneurysm remnants should be retreated and uh, uh, which we, uh, you know, may be safe in watching? Yeah, no, I, I like that. You know, I think this is um, uh, totally uh, agree with your statement uh, to try to use more um, uh, more more scientific data and more uh, quantifying the um, the risk of a bleed using uh, the uh, CFD and uh, computation of low dynamic data um, to try to predict uh, which aneurysm uh, is more likely to rupture. Um, I'm very interested as well here, and we are actually in our institution. We're looking for a, an engineer with computational flow dynamic. We are very close to get one in uh, to help with this, and hopefully we can do this in the angio suite too. You know, uh, there's some also research ongoing uh, in ang on angiogram to compute the data as well as the CTA and other uh, methods of uh, of treating, trying to make it more clinically applicable. I think if it's uh, become clinically applicable, it will be used more often. Well, you have a great um, re resource there with General Electrics. I'm sure you, you may be able to find somebody uh, from there, so um, uh, that's great. That's really all the questions I had. Um, do, you, do you have any comments that um, uh, that you'd like to make? And I think I think this is uh, something what I think uh, all the other researchers there is a longitudinal process to continue with the advanced technology, like you mentioned, advanced ways to screen for people who are prone to rupture to refine this clinically important question uh, for pa for our patient, for our practice, when to treat, you know, what's the risk of retreat, how can you reduce the likelihood of retreatment. I think as the technology evolves, like our data already from, you know, from three years with more advances in technology. Uh, we are hoping that uh, more more uh, scientific research will shed the light on what's going on right now. Well, great, and um, you know, congratulations. It was a fantastic article, and I really appreciate you um, spending time to talk to me. Thank you.